we are in process of reviewing the natural attributes of God as revealed in the Bible, preparatory to our considering the question, what do we know about the faithfulness of God from the Bible? The Bible, the source of our knowledge of the inner nature of God, reveals to us certain characteristics concerning God that are a basic part of the divine being. Because they do not involve a moral choice nor moral character, we call them natural attributes or features with which God is endowed. We are conscious that we ourselves have certain characteristics of our inner beings which we possess without any choice on our part. We possess basically the ability to think, the ability to feel, and the ability to act or decide what we shall do. We cannot help having these traits or characteristics, and therefore they are natural attributes of our constitution. Our bodies also have natural attributes. But the natural attributes of God are those of eternity or an endless existence in the successions of eternity, of omnipresence, or that characteristic of pure spiritual existence by which God is everywhere present, of omniscience, or that state of awareness of everything that is taking place, a knowledge of all facts that have been and are in existence, and of omnipotence, or the immeasurable power of God, which we shall presently discuss. As was mentioned, I became fully persuaded more than twenty years ago from a painstaking reading and study of the Bible that the God of the Bible lived in a succession of time or possessed a sequence or chronology to his actions. Rather than God dwelling in an eternal now of some sort, as theologians often affirm, the Bible pictures God as having new thoughts, as having new experiences or new reactions of pleasure and disappointment, and as making new decisions of will from day to day in view of circumstances. It is plainly affirmed that God does not have foreknowledge of all his own actions or the actions of free moral agents. God makes endless changes in his dispensations and government in view of the voluntary choices of his free agents, man. But in studying what the Bible does affirm about the knowledge of God, we saw that in the first place it extends to every minute detail of every event that is taking place, even to every thought of men. What God himself shall decide on every detail of the future is not now knowable. What men shall decide in their future free actions is not now knowable, nor their future destinies. But in the second place, the Bible reveals that God knows many future actions of men. But nowhere in the Bible is it said that God knows all the future actions of men. 
In many instances, it is plainly revealed that God did not have a knowledge of men's future actions. In the instances where God does have a knowledge of men's future actions, there is an element of causation involved, or a profound knowledge of man's tendencies and universal reactions. For example, in Exodus 3.19, God could tell Moses, his servant, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, the children of Israel being referred to. No, not by a mighty hand. The simple answer was that God had purposed to judge the whole nation of Egypt for their sin and persecution of the Israelites in cruel bondage, and would harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would not, in fact, let the children of Israel go. This purpose is expressed in the third chapter of Exodus, verse 20. Thus we see that this occasion, which has been a consideration of much perplexity to many, is of a very simple analysis. In Matthew chapter 20 and verses 17 to 19, our Lord Jesus could predict his coming rejection and crucifixion on the basis of two things. Let us read this passage. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Now, if this is not a matter of simple foreknowledge of every detail of the future, on what basis could such a prediction be made, we ask? In the first place, the holiness of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ was so convicting to the mass of men that they would certainly seek to put him to death. This has been a long recognized fact on the part of God as he has had contact in persuading men to turn from their sin. The Lord Jesus would only be able to remain alive as the direct power of God would protect him. This was the case at Nazareth, you recall, at the beginning of his ministry, when they took him out to the brow of the hill and would cast him down headlong. But we read that the power of God so came upon them that our Lord Jesus went through the midst of them and quietly went his way. Then secondly, when the Lord Jesus was to be delivered into the hands of men as the Savior of the world, the Jews would naturally show their hate by stoning him. This was the common mode of punishment among the Jews. But while delivering over the Savior and allowing men to manifest their sinful hearts in rejecting him, this was the nature of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior of the world had to be given over into the hands of men as their substitute now what would they do with him? This was the great colossal problem. And so in view of their utter rebellion and rejection, God would cause a mental preference in the minds of the rulers and of the mob in favor of that manner of showing their wrath 
that would make it possible for God to accomplish the blessed atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ at the same time. So God would cause them to call forth, if they must have this wrath in their hearts, that the Lord Jesus should be crucified rather than be stoned. This would make it possible to accomplish the blessed atonement and still allow man his freedom of reaction. The Lord Jesus did not die from the crucifixion, as perhaps you are well aware of, but from the load of the world's sin upon his holy heart, which ruptured and broke it. Persons punished by crucifixion lived on their crosses for several days, sometimes a week or more. The Jews did not want the three bodies on the crosses over the Sabbath day, you remember, and therefore the soldiers were instructed to break their legs, that they would die the sooner, so their bodies could be taken down. This is recorded for us in the 19th chapter of John, verses 31 to 32. Then we read in verse 33, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. So here we have a positive evidence that the Lord Jesus did not die of the crucifixion, and therefore it was possible by God exercising this mental preference in the mob's mind as they spontaneously called forth that he be crucified rather than what would be naturally expected from them, that they would call forth that he be stoned. The glorious atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ could be accomplished in spite of man's wrath and wickedness in rejecting their Savior. Then one of the soldiers, you remember, pierced his side, and there came out blood and water. John is particularly emphatic in this observation, as we read in the 19th chapter, verses 34 and 5. And thus we have in recent times come to understand that this was indicative of a death from a broken or a ruptured heart, a sorrowing unto death. And thus, even though man rejected the Savior, God has uh, accomplished the glorious atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ for the sins of the whole world. And thus could our Lord Jesus uh, make a prediction of these details. Thus God can know many of man's future actions by his profound knowledge of man's persistent rebellion. The coming apostasy and the final judgment that will end the age are thus certainties to God. We are now in a parenthesis of the preaching of the gospel, which shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto the, all nations, and then shall the end come, as recorded in Matthew 24, 14. God knows from the extreme difficulty of salvation and man's resistance to truth, that the mass of men will reject the gospel and press on in their sinful rebellion against the loving heart of God. God has prepared his plans accordingly and sees no other process than that of terminating man's sin by judgment. But in the third place, the Bible indicates that there are many events which God has determined to bring to pass in his providential government of the world in all its affairs, and can therefore prophesy them beforehand. 
God foreknows such things simply because he plans to bring them to pass by his causative power. Thus God could tell Abraham that his descendants would spend about 400 years in Egypt, as in Genesis 15, 13 to 15, which actually became 430 years, as recorded in Exodus 12, 40 and 41. God could speak of Rebekah's twins and could choose Jacob to carry forth the line of descent and prosper him, which was certainly not in respect to his character, which was of a very deceitful nature, as recorded in the 25th chapter of Genesis, verse 23. The work of the Gentile king Cyrus could be prophesied by Isaiah about 150 years before his great mission of making provision for returning the captive remnant to their promised land. He was a man of destiny, named by causation and stirred up to do God's will, as recorded in Isaiah 44:28 to 45:4. Jeremiah was a child of special purpose to give a last witness to his erring nation, as recorded in the first chapter, verse 5, and prophesied the 70-year captivity in Babylon, as recorded in the 25th chapter of Jeremiah, verses 11, 12, which God would causatively terminate. And so we come to the consideration of the facts of the Word of God, but how profound it is that the Bible speaks of the nature of God and gives us such a picture of his love. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that many may respond to thy kindness and thy tenderness, may accept the substituted death of the Lord Jesus, by faith in a state of repentance, be reconciled to thee in Jesus' name. Amen.